1: Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed?
0: Can I make my side softer?
1: Can I make my side firmer whenever I want? Can, Can we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that, cools up to eight times faster, and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Frequently on this podcast, we've had discussions focused around the impacts of weather and climate on society. With the emergence of the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, as we all know it, we've now found ourselves contemplating what impacts weather and climate could have on the transmission of this mysterious and deadly virus. Today, we welcome two experts in the field of microbiology, Dr. Lloyd Haw and Dr. Shana Ratnasar-Shumate from the Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Directorate. We'll discuss the main variables that affect this virus and how the changing seasons can affect its spread. Will COVID-19 continue to survive and thrive in the months to come? Let's find out. Thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
2: Glad to be here.
0: Thank you
1: for having us. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I just want to jump in. And, and Lloyd, did I pronounce your name, last name correctly?
0: Uh, yes, Oh,
1: huh. huh. Okay, great. I just yes. wanted to make sure I always like to get, but look, before we get into the COVID-19 and seasonality, um, this is a show that has a broad readership and listenership, I should say. And so we like to get personal. Uh, so I mean, I'm curious, how did you all get involved or interested in your careers? I'll start with you, Sha- Shauna.
0: Sure. You know, the first time I kind of thought about this particular career was when I was in high school and I saw the um, movie Outbreak and I was just fascinated um, by just viruses and the idea of containment and sort of the excitement of the movie. And I thought, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And Ironically, I didn't actually choose a path that would take me to that end in college. I went the route of engineering and somehow ended up still in that same field. And I'm sort of really grateful for that. But I, yeah, I've always wanted to understand infectious diseases and and what contributes to their transmission and, and how they affect people.
1: And before we go to Lloyd, let me just give you a little bit of Shauna's background. Dr. Shauna Ratnasar Shoemate, uh, she is the senior principal investigator, uh, aerobiology for BTC at the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center for the Department of Homeland Security, National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center in the ACC. Now, look, these are government agency folks. They use a lot of acronyms. I used to be at NASA, so I know all about it. Uh, she focuses on understanding how different Infectious diseases are transmitted through the environment via droplets and aerosols, certainly something we've heard quite a bit about with COVID-19, and we'll get more into it. She's a member of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Fellowship Program, As it is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, and she received her PhD in biochem, chemical, biochemical, and environmental engineering from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, which I also am very familiar with and know my good fraternity. Brother dr. Freeman Herboski, the the president there now I want to give you some of Lloyd's credentials after he answers the question so how' did you get into this Lloyd same way uh, I became interested
2: uh, during during high school uh, probably like a lot of people become interested in their careers with a very influential high school teacher who taught biology uh, and continuously challenged me and, and made the subject really engaging and just kind of Grew from
1: there. Yeah, no, you know, we always ask this question because typically we have meteorologists or weather types on, and um, typically there's an interest somewhere in the K through. well, typically K through sixth grade level for a lot of the meteorology types that come on the show. And that's certainly my story as well. Now, let, me, let me give you a little bit of the background on Dr. Lloyd Huff. He's the lead for the Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center, HACTC, at the US Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate. Uh, HACTC provides DHS, s and with core chemical, biological, and explosive hazard awareness, and characterization to support the department's mission to prevent terrorism involving these materials. Uh, he's a microbiologist responsible for technical direction of the biological threat characterization efforts under the probabilistic analysis of natural threats, hazards, and risk program. And it looks like it has the cleverly thought out acronym Panther. BTS, BTC, BTS, uh, that's actually a K-pop group for those out there listening and they're familiar with it. BTC, uh, BTC is charged with conducting studies of biological threat agents and associated technology as defined in the National Bio defense strategy and to support the needs of the department and the broader homeland security enterprise. And Dr. Huff has his PhD in microbiology with a specialty in biotechnology from Michigan State University there in Lansing, Michigan. All right, so let's let's just dive right in now that we've, we kind of, we know who you are. Uh, when COVID-19 first came on the scene, what, what were your first impressions of it? Lloyd, let's start with you.
2: Uh, so honestly, uh, I didn't think that much of it until, uh, it really wasn't when, when the outbreak first began and we began to see cases in China, I I figured it was just going to be another outbreak. We've had outbreaks before we had an outbreak of the the original SARS coronavirus in 2004. And I figured that, you know, the, the public health officials around the world would get it under control. It really wasn't until cases began arriving in uh, the United States in late January and early February, and those began to grow uncontrolled, that I really recognized that we
1: had a problem on our hands. Shawna, any additional things you want to add to that?
0: I think uh, similarly, um, I, I did originally think that this would be contained like the first SARS outbreak and that it, it, it wasn't going to s- spread globally, but I think very quickly it became apparent and, and any new bug, you immediately as a scientist, you become inquisitive, you want to know, is it different? Is it going to spread differently? So I was very eager early on to uh, to, to, to try to, to, to get involved with the science and, and start to study it. Um, and, and unfortunately it, it did take off. So, um, that, that happened so rapidly. I really feel like it, it, getting our minds wrapped around that was, was sort of, it, it took longer than it actually took for the virus to really spread. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, by the way, from University of Georgia, and I'm talking with two colleagues from the Department of Homeland Security, and you know, I contribute to Forbes Magazine, and I wrote an article very on early on because there was all of this speculation about the weather and hot season, warm season, summer, and it'll go away. Um, you know, CDC website was always fairly clear that this is a novel virus, and the relationships to heat weren't as clear as perhaps people's anecdotal understandings of the flu or the cold going away, perhaps or subsiding some when it's warm season. So let's let's talk a little bit. Let's this is weather geeks. Let's geek out. Let's geek out a little bit on what we know, not so much about coronavirus and COVID-19 event uh, initially, but what do we know about how viruses and bacteria tend to respond or behave to certain elements of the weather, for for example, heat or rainfall or moisture. So whoever wants to take that. Go ahead, Um,
0: Shawna. I'm gonna speak in generalizations now, but I think one of the reasons why we um, initially anticipated that climate or environment may have some effect on the virus is because um, to date things like influenza and the common cold, we definitely see a seasonality. Um, and in, in generally speaking, higher temperatures, higher relative humidities, um, and sunlight are all things that for, you know, Historically, we have measured for a number of infectious diseases and has shown that it, um, it, it decreases transmission rates and, and you see less people becoming infected. And we've done laboratory studies to show that all these types of organisms are inactivated in a laboratory when you replicate these conditions indoors. So um, I think it, it was sort of an, an assumption that it would follow the trend that other sort of more um, what I would say continuously emerging or continuous diseases that are in the environment have have had in terms of climate. But um, I think perhaps the fact that it's so brand new to the population and that this population hasn't been exposed to this is sort of what kind of threw us in terms of what we're actually seeing right now in, in sort of this warmer climate where we're not seeing it dip like we expected for something like flu and common cold.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm just curious because just I'm not an infectious disease expert, but just from a, as a, uh, a meteorologist and climate scientist, I was looking at some of the, the Asian countries that were sort of dealing with it early on, and they were fairly subtropical. And then again, in April, I, I noticed Florida and Arizona dealing with record heat were also dealing with it. And it's particularly interesting to see that we're in what typically is the hottest part of the year in Georgia, where I am, Florida, Texas, and we're seeing surges in cases. So uh, I I think for folks like you, this will be a treasure trove of data uh, to learn from as we move forward. Uh, Have have there been any, uh, and Lloyd, I'll come to you for this, have there been any signs of seasonality in any aspects of COVID-19? I think you might be on mute there. We want to get you off I did. There's a
2: a leaf blower next door. Um, Right on cue
1: as we were talking about before we came on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Yeah. So there's, um, um, there's no real evidence in the epidemiology for seasonality yet. And I think that's probably because like, like, Uh, Shauna said, uh, nobody is immune to the virus that is now circulating. Nobody has pre-existing immunity. Um, And so at some point we may see it become a seasonal affliction, but right now, because everybody is susceptible to it, the weather is not having that most significant effect. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's hard to say whether it will be or won't be in the future.
1: Yeah. I and I I and I Shauna mentioned sunlight as well, not just the heat, but I've I, I've read and even documented some cases where some aspects of the ultraviolet uh ultraviolet radiation or UV uh can have have a, an impact and perhaps rapid heating. So for example, one of the things that I've started doing if I park my car. Uh, outside if I'm running in the grocery store or the mall. I live in the Atlanta area. It's really hot here right now. so I've started to keep my mask up on the dashboard because I've heard that rapid heating uh, and maybe UV can help with that. Is that myth or am I doing something that's somewhat right?
2: <laughs> no, I, I definitely think you're doing the right things. Uh, Shauna can talk to the results that they generated at the laboratory, but we've actually shown uh, through laboratory studies, that that the virus is affected by both heat, humidity, and temperature, um, and and it does go away much more rapidly as the the temperature, the humidity, and particularly sunlight. And so I'll I'll turn it over to Shauna to talk about the experiments that we've done and and the, the papers that they've published recently. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, Shauna.
0: Marshall, so we've done two sets of studies so far with SARS-CoV-2 in our laboratories. Um, We've looked at droplets, um, which are representative of the virus when it's expelled in sort of coughs, and we've looked at those on surfaces. And then we've also looked at the virus suspended in aerosols, so you can think the more smaller, fine particulates that are coming from the deep lung when people are breathing. Um, and in both cases, we essentially expose the virus in these two states uh, to different temperatures, different relative humidities, and simulated sunlight. We have these great solar simulators in our laboratory, and we can shine them through these quartz windows and essentially expose the virus um, to the simulated sunlight at those different temperatures and relative humidities. And we can look at um, how much of the virus is infectious over time. And what I can tell you is in the presence of simulated sunlight, and we do we did this at three different intensities that represent what we call sort of peak intensity, which is kind of like a UV index of eight. So on a day where you're going to want to be concerned about wearing sunscreen, um, high amounts of light, summer solstice around noon, the virus is inactivated. About 90% of it is inactivated on the order of seven minutes. Um, so definitely leaving your Amazon box on a hot day in the sun, you know, hoping it's not Chocolate or something, so that's not melting. But <laughs> leaving it outside in the sunlight, um, you're going to definitely see a decrease in the amount of virus that's on that um, material. And th- and the same with the window. You know, one of the caveats with the window is a lot of glasses don't um, glass materials don't allow a lot of UVB light to penetrate. And we believe that it's the UVB component of natural sunlight that is causing most of that inactivation. Um, But yeah, we definitely found even at a winter solstice around noon, you'll see an activation of the virus in our studies on a surface within about 30 minutes. So, um, you know, there's lots of caveats, you know, whether there's cloud cover or if it's in the shade, but definitely sunlight inactivates it very rapidly And as Lloyd mentioned, um, we do see some correlation as well with increasing temperature and also with increasing relative humidity. So all of the same factors that we've seen historically for other biological organisms do seem to contribute to the inactivation of the virus in terms of those parameters um, in, in laboratory studies.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Lloyd Huff and Dr. Shanna Ratnasar Shoemate from the Department of Homeland Security and the sort of generic title of this podcast episode is, Will a Hot Summer Kill COVID-19? Well, I think we already know the answer to that to some degree if you're just anecdotally seeing what's going on, but I think it's a bit more nuanced of a question for those of us that are scientists. I think we'll learn more about this. Uh, Lloyd, what about rainfall? I mean, I'd I'd heard some people back during the earliest shutdown saying, well, you know, if it rains, it's going to wash it off the playgrounds and various things that are outside and the kids can go play. Do we know anything about rainfall and its ability to wash away the virus, or is it really the sort of the soap and disinfectants that really are the most important thing?
2: Um, I, I, I don't think we have specific data on the impact of rainfall um, on, on the virus outside. I think what you'll find is most of the transmission is really from person to person. Um, and, and it's relatively quick, right? So the, the, the CDC says that they're not able to see a lot of, um, they don't see a lot of roles of objects that we might touch like the playground, but there may be some um, that they're not detecting in their epidemiological studies. So rain, rainfall will certainly wash the virus off. We just don't have a lot of data on that uh, to be able to contribute um, you would expect it to be washed out of the air by rainfall. You would expect it to be washed off surfaces, but that won't necessarily, you know, any, anybody who's sneezed on something and, and didn't clean it up, you know, or had a kid sneeze on something and you haven't had a chance to clean up, that it becomes kind of crusty and it might stay on there and it might not be easily washed off. So it's always best to take that precaution and assume that it hasn't been washed off and make sure that you're cleaning those surfaces before you, you go ahead and, and touch
1: them. Yeah, and I wanna shift gears a little bit because I, I've heard or read that the type of seasonality, the type of weather, a type of air quality of pollution might actually make some people more susceptible uh, to the symptoms. So if they have a positive taste test or have uh, you know been infected with the virus. So, Is there any evidence that poor air quality, for example, uh, exacerbates the impacts of, of this virus or any other types of conditions that we know about. Uh, Sean, I'll come to you for that.
0: So I think it's too early in this particular outbreak and for this particular virus, we still don't really know how much virus it, it is needed to cause infection. So we we need to develop those models preliminarily and understand that first before we start to look at different um, types of populations and different factors that are gonna contribute to shifting that either left or right. Um, I I do know that there is evidence for other types of infectious diseases that things like asthma, smoking, poor air quality can um, suppress the immune system or potentially contribute to um, more susceptibility, but definitely I don't think today I've seen anything um, published that talks about that for SARS-CoV-2 specifically.
1: Right. Now, I'm looking through some of the production notes here that our outstanding production staff typically provides for me in preparation for the podcast. And they note that DHS has created a website that has developed calculators which allow you to alter the environment to see how COVID will respond to surface decay and airborne decay. Uh, Can one of you enlighten me on this website and where I can find it? Sure. Sure.
2: So uh, on the DHS uh, public website, if you go to dhs.gov, um, you will find uh, there, there's a banner across the top. Uh, and you, you can get to there from you can get to those calculators from that banner. Uh, there's a link that appears. Uh, and if the, the link does not appear, then you can simply um, go in and um, go down to the Science and Technology page. And it's again, linked directly from the science and technology homepage. Those calculators are really, um, they were intended and and developed to try and take the data that Shauna and her colleagues generated and have now published in scientific papers and make it more readily accessible, make it more readily usable to people who do have an interest to know how quickly does the virus disappear under certain conditions. Right now, the calculators are limited by the conditions that Shauna and her colleagues have tested. So whether or not sunlight was included in those set of studies, um, the the surface calculator does not presently include sunlight as a decay factor. It only includes the temperature and humidity. So it's currently more representative of an indoor environment and our indoor weather uh, impacting that. Whereas the airborne decay include sunlight, temperature, and humidity, uh, and, and it incorporates, the, 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 it, it incorporates the, the, the computational models, the formulas that Shana and her colleagues were able to develop from the data they collected in the laboratory.
1: And, and speaking of indoor weather, if you will, I've been hearing a lot of rumor and innuendo or perhaps truth to the notion that circulation by air conditioning systems in buildings and restaurants is a problem. What can you tell us about that? Either of you, I'll go back to Shauna here.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, indoor conditions tend to be very dry um, relative humidity is dry because of HVAC systems. And in our In our experiments, what we've seen, obviously, is that um, at lower relative humidities, the virus does survive longer. Um, One of the things about indoor, depending on the HVAC system and the airflow system, um, is that it's recirculating very oftentimes. It's not usually... uh, It's not an in in in, and then out, right? And so you have sort of this accumulation of material. And if you have a population that is breathing, just normal breathing and potentially shedding that virus, that material is concentrating in this indoor environment. And obviously, there's lots of caveats and there's different types of designs that go into HVAC. So it's very different. But yeah, that is a huge concern. And also, we tend to keep indoor conditions at lower temperatures so that we're more comfortable. Well, again, we have seen in our studies for indoor conditions that yeah, you know, slightly lower temperature, it, the virus does survive better. So to some degree, it's, it's we're our own worst enemy and that we're, you know, we, we create these environments to be comfortable, but unfortunately, they're also great environments for the virus as well.
1: But it's hot, Sean. It's hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. No, but I get it. No, I completely get it. And so, um, yeah, and, and in many ways, I think we are our own worst enemy. So should we or should people be... Is this a suggestion from you all or the CDC that people bump up their temperature some, or have humidifiers in their homes or in their rooms, or is it not to the point that we can make that type of recommendation yet?
2: So I'll jump in, and, and I don't, I don't think that we actually have that kind of data. Um, and 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 the the hard part about it is everybody's air conditioning system is different. Um, other factors play a role, such as how much fresh air does your air conditioning system bring in from the outside. How leaky is your home? Um, and then you have what kind of filter do you have on your on your air conditioner, and how how old is that filter? Have you replaced it, you know, sometime soon or recently? Um, and so, all of that has a has a huge impact. I think what you can say is, is you know, still the CDC guidelines are, are, are right. You want to limit your congregation with large groups of people. You want to make sure that you can socially distance. You want to be able to stay at least six feet away from uh, other people uh, and wear a mask. Um, mm-hmm. It's the best thing that we can do for for us and our, and, and others that, that are in those same spaces with us.
0: Yeah, yeah. and, and, and- Oh, sorry. I was Go just going to say one thing that has come up a few times in conversations is um, you have to keep in mind that if you increase humidity indoors and, and you're in Georgia and, and I'm from Florida, um, that's not sustainable because it actually contributes to the growth of other things like um, molds, which have a negative um, health impact as well. So yes, it's, it's worse for the virus, but you're also creating another problem. So that's kind of one of the trade-offs that, you know, We've talked about, do you increase the RH to decrease the virus? But now you've got this other problem you've created, so. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
2: There really is no place like home.
0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car
1: from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Lloyd Hoff and Dr. Shana ratnasar Shumate. Of the Department of Homeland Security, and we're talking about coronavirus and environmental conditions. And look, we're talking with two actual experts. So forget that Facebook post or that tweet uh, from your uncle who's not an expert in this. We're talking to, at Weather Geeks, we get right to the core. We're talking to people who know the subject rather than those that speculated about it on social media. And that's important because there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of innuendo, getting around social media uh, about this. And so we we go right to the source. Now, I want to come down the lane of something that we in the meteorological community are very familiar with, and that's modeling. So we make predictions of our weather one day, two days, three days, seven days out using models. They solve complex equations, the Navier-Stokes equations, their fluid dynamics models, et cetera. We have uh, the seventh named Tropical Storm Gonzalo out there right now as we're taping this. How are models used in the world of viruses and and this is something that i've actually challenged some people on or asked the question about because i know in the weather world NOAA, for example and others There's a very concerted effort to sort of produce sort of a state-of-the-art weather forecast modeling system, whereas it appears to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there are multiple sort of groups that have their own models, so to speak. There's not sort of a national model, if you will, like there's a national American GFS model or European model. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about, and I'll go to Lloyd first, tell us a little bit about models and viruses and sort of where we are with them and where we need to be with them.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, biologists use models uh, a, a lot of the, the the same ways that meteorologists do. Uh, unfortunately, our models are um, not nearly as mature, uh, and they suffer from a lack of a lot of data. There's a lot of things about viruses that we just don't know, um, and and other germs. It's not just limited to viruses. Um, so because of some of those limitations we probably make a lot more assumptions and it's not just physics or thermodynamics that drives what we're doing there's a lot of other factors that play into it like Um, people (laughs) people uh, physiology um everybody's biology is different uh whether or not you had your orange juice for breakfast this morning might have an impact on your susceptibility whether or not you t- take certain medications may have an impact on your susceptibility. And a lot of these things are things we simply don't know. Um, but we use a, a wide variety of models. And, and for us, the models are, are both somewhat, they're, they're, they're not nearly as complex. We use them in, I think they're, they're a lot simpler because we focus on smaller aspects of, of, of particular phenomenon uh, in epidemiology, and there are lots of models. And a lot of those models are very carefully tuned to the application that they're being used for. Uh, So DHS looks at models that try to assess national risk or national hazard posed by a biological agent. When we do that, we're generalizing. We're, we're generalizing New York and Los Angeles and Philadelphia and Washington as large cities, and we're generalizing other small cities uh, like Columbus, Ohio, and, and other places. And when we do that, we're, we're trying to understand national risk. We're trying to predict which one represents a significant risk to Homeland Security. But then there are other instances where um, CDC may be running a model where they're trying to predict the number of hospital beds. And the calculations are different um, for for each of those models. Other people may be looking at the consumption of medical equipment, or maybe looking at the impact of, of travel across borders. So every model is tailored to its purpose and a lot of the data is, again, unknown for for a lot of the a lot of the, the viruses and diseases that we're concerned about. We just don't have great data about how those viruses interact with us as hosts
1: well i know one thing that we both suffer from in both of our modeling communities is the initial condition problem Uh, our initial condition is the atmosphere we send up weather balloons satellite information so forth to initialize these models forward in time and i imagine there are similar initial condition issues too but they're just different a little bit as you mentioned challenging because dealing with human actors and decisions and physical physical and microbiological traits of the human being and so forth Uh, So I can imagine that would be quite the challenge. Sean, I want to kind of start to wrap up a bit with a discussion about where people can find out what you're up to. Because my sense is from talking to both of you and having worked as a federal scientist at NASA myself, uh, people may not be familiar with the fact that you all are research scientists, you publish in the science literature, peer-reviewed literature as well. Tell us about sort of the ultimate sort of big picture goal of what your units are doing uh, for the overall DHS mission? Is it simply an R&D function? Does it eventually have some kind of applications transfer? I'll start with you, Sean, and then come to um, to um, Lloyd.
0: Sure. So, I mean, my role specifically is, is I'm the scientist in the lab, right? So, um, we identify capabilities that we have that are very specific to understanding parameters for transmission of the virus, um, things that, like I said, are chambers where we can look at the effects of temperature and relative humidity and sunlight or, or doing uh, developing animal models. Um, we take sort of gaps in information as they're identified by Homeland Security and and basically go into a laboratory and, and study them and try to understand them and pro- provide data that can be used by not only Homeland Security, but the broader public health community and the public in general to help make informed decisions about how to minimize their risk of, of contracting the virus. And so primarily my job is, is to to do the science and do the research and make sure it's of good quality, that it agrees and is 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 peer reviewed, that the community agrees with the results that we get and, and get it out there as soon as possible in, in, in a good format that is usable to everybody. And, and then you know, Lloyd and, and his program take it from
1: there. Yeah, and, and Lloyd, pick up the discussion.
2: Yeah, so uh, DHS works closely with our partners across the United States government and across the the Department of Homeland Security, and and our job is really to take and conduct conduct studies to better understand what are what are our requirements, what are our needs, where are we concerned? Do we need a detector that might detect this virus? Do we need, um, you know, do we need something to to screen passengers at, a, at an airport. And so we work with the different components and, and our other partners across the, across the entire United States government and the, and the whole Homeland Security enterprise. So we work with states, uh, locals, and and companies to try and identify what those needs are. And as we, as we do that, we then conduct research or we try and conduct research that both informs our understanding of the problem and helps us provide some solutions. So in addition to the, the work that, that Shauna has talked about, we've evaluated different disinfectants and means of cleaning up environments. We're working with TSA to try and make sure that, that passengers who do choose to get onto an airplane are able to get through their security checks safely and you know uh, without creating contaminated environments. Um, that the planes can be can be decontaminated. We're also looking at ways of, of reusing PPE uh, because PPE is in limited supply already. So are there ways that we can extend the supplies of PPE by going through um, going through laboratory studies? And we do this within a within the context of, of understanding what that risk is. So we start with with the requirements that come from from DHS components and other partners. And then we evaluate what others have already done, what other scientific groups have already done in this space, because we don't want to duplicate any science unnecessarily. Uh, So we produced the the master question list, uh, which is a document also available on the, the DHS website that tries to break down specifically the SARS coronavirus into about 15 questions, what do we need to know about this virus? So we need to know, is this virus uh, infectious? And what is that dose? What is, the, what is the dose that you have to inhale or you have to ingest in order to get sick? Um, the next question would be, how can we treat it? Um, what are treatments are available? And so we kind of go through this, this very extensive process of understanding what is already out there. And then we turn that into requirements for, for folks at the lab, like Shauna, to begin to answer those questions. And uh, the stability of the virus in the environment was one of those big gaps. We knew that we didn't have data on on its you know, stability in the atmosphere or instability on surfaces once it had landed. Um, and that led to the work that, that, that Shauna has done and her colleagues have done up at the NMEC.
1: And it, it just really illustrates the importance of the research and development aspect of all of the federal agencies, including DHS. And on behalf of myself and my colleagues here at Weather Geeks and Weather Channel, we just want to thank you all's dedicated um, uh, professionals helping us all get through this and hope we will get through it. Uh, and hopefully we're learning more each time for the next one, or the, for the next outbreak that comes along. Uh, where Where can people find out more about either of your uh, operations, or perhaps you on social media, or your or your organizations on the web. Uh, give us some websites or social media sites.
2: Uh, www.dhs.gov. Um, start is is a great place to start. From there, you can get to the Science and Technology Directorate. Um, and um, and a, a Google search for the, the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center will quickly find you uh, a similar page on DHS website.
1: How about you, Sean? Anything to add?
0: Well um on those same websites you can actually find all links to all of the publications in the different journals for our work as they are pushed out and so it'll link you directly to the different journals and we've published now in two different journals and we have about five additional manuscripts that are in preparation so if you go to that particular website you can track them sort of in real time as they become available and follow our work
1: I'm just curious are you guys both based in the DC area or are you distributed around the nation
0: uh, I'm in Frederick, Maryland. Um, uh-huh. cause and back is located at Fort Detrick
1: the teacher, sure. I used to live in Germantown, Maryland, right up the, down the road. From oh yeah,
0: Rondon. that's close, yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So, very, I was just curious because I know a lot of people are um, always curious about where some of these folks are that we talk to are distributed. Um, let me just get to something that I have to get to. It doesn't involve YouTube, but it's our Geek of the Week. We do it every week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Spencer Holt. Spencer is a young forecaster from Chattanooga, Tennessee. He has his own YouTube channel where he gives weekly weather forecasts for the Mid-South and covers breaking severe weather, including this past Easter Sunday tornado outbreak. Keep up the great work, Spencer, and you'll be on our TV in no time. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, Check out our social media page at Twitter and Facebook. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia. Thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you all for listening. Hey, let's get through this. Wear your mask, social distance. We'll get through it. And we'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks.